This is The New Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. In a few moments, we will join the two latest winners of the New Criterion Poetry Prize, Nicholas Pierce and Bruce Bond, as we celebrate their awards and as they read from their winning books here in the offices of the New Criterion. But first, I want to welcome Adam Kirsch, poetry editor of the New Criterion, current judge of the Poetry Prize, and 2002 winner of the prize. Adam is here to talk about the April issue of the New Criterion, which includes a special section on poetry. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Adam, you are the lead editor on this section, and I have to say, if I were, if you were to ask me a favorite essay, I would say all of them, from William Logan on John Berriman to Carmine Starnino on AI poetry, Daniel Mark Epstein on E.A. Robinson to A.E. Stallings on Louise Glick, plus a piece by Jean Cocteau and Two Poets in Translation. It's a terrific section this year. I think so, and I, I'm very glad to have all these pieces in the April issue. It's always exciting to work on the poetry issue for April. National Poetry Month is in April, so we have this special section issue devoted to that. And uh, it's a very interesting range of subjects and of writers, so I'm happy with it. I wonder if you would briefly take us through what you've included. Absolutely. Well, William Logan, who readers of The New Criterion will know as the author of the Poetry Chronicle, in which he writes about new books of poetry, um, has written about a new edition of the letters of the poet John Berryman, who is one of the most uh, celebrated and sort of unusual American poets of the 20th century. He wrote a lot about his own life and his own demons and struggles uh, and came up with a, a new form of poem called The Dream Song, which he wrote a lot of. Uh, these letters sort of reveal the story behind the story. And William Logan is one of the America's leading poetry critics and has always interesting things to say, um, and especially about Berryman. Uh, Carmine Starnino, who is a poet and critic in Canada, has contributed a fascinating essay about the question of whether computers, artificial intelligences, can ever really write poems, um, which is sort of a, sounds like a science fiction question, but every year computers are able to do things that no one ever thought they would be able to do. They can beat the best chess players, and uh, does it, is it out of the realm of possibility that one day they will be able to write poems, maybe poems so good that you wouldn't be able to tell they were written by a computer? And Starnino looks at this uh, problem and, and makes an interesting argument that not until computers actually have experiences that they feel that they need to write about will they be able to write good poems. It's a fascinating piece. How did he get to know so much about this topic? He must have uh, must have been following it, and, and this is sort of the fruit of his thinking about it. Um, artificial intelligence is something that we often hear about in terms of medicine, science, technology. Uh, it's not often discussed in terms of literature and the arts, so this is a very interesting perspective on it. Uh, then Edward and Arlington Robinson, who is now remembered really, I think, just for one of his poems, uh, Eros Turanos, was in the early 20th century the most decorated American poet. He won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, four times. And what he was best known for were these long narrative poems, book-length poems, um, which now are completely unknown and unread. So Daniel Mark Epstein, as a poet and biographer, has uh, read them and, and talks about what is in these poems, which ones are good and which ones aren't so good, uh, what we can still get out of them today. So it's a, an act of rediscovery and rehabilitation for once famous poet. Uh, 
Um, a poet who's who's quite famous now, Louise Glick, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, um, really the first American poet to win the Nobel Prize in, in decades, uh, is the subject of an essay by A.E. Stallings, uh, who is a poet herself who lives in Athens, and she's uh, writing about a poet, Louise Glick, who often writes about Greek mythology, so it's a, an excellent match of, of author and subject, and she has some very interesting insights into the way Glick writes about myth. She sort of covers her whole career. And then finally, we were lucky to get this excerpt from uh, a book by Jean Cocteau, the French poet and filmmaker, who this book has never been translated before. It's called Letter to the Americans. And it was written by Cocteau in French after he visited the U.S. after World War II at a time when a lot of uh, European writers were coming to America to see what it was all about, knowing that America would have a big influence on their future. Uh, Cocteau wrote this uh, short book sort of trying to explain the French to the Americans and the Americans to the French and we have excerpted a section about poetry and literature. And it had never been translated until now? That's right. The book is being translated and published by New Directions uh, this summer for the first time. That's great. And of course, translation is also part of the new poetry that we have, right? That's right. In the poetry issue, we often feature new translations and uh, in this issue we have translations from the Russian poet Marina Tsvetaeva, who's a, a classic poet um, of the 20th century, translated by a very good uh, poet named Boris Dralyuk. And we have translations of a poet who is new to me, and I expect will be new to many readers, named Kim Ok, who is a Korean modernist, um, apparently has a, a very important place in modern Korean literature, but is not very well known abroad. And we have a couple of poems by Kim Ok, translated by Ryan Choi. Beautiful work. I love looking at those. Well, thank you, Adam. Now let's turn to the poets with introductions by Roger Kimball and Adam. And listeners, consider joining us for such programs in person, in our offices and other venues around town. As a friend or young friend of the New Criterion, simply visit newcriterion.com slash friends for more. And now I think you can perhaps already hear them. Let's turn to the event. I think I've met most people here. I'm Roger Kimball, the editor of the New Criterion. I'm delighted that you're here, even more so than usual, of course, because for the last couple of years, our masters in Albany and Gracie Mansion and elsewhere prevented us from gathering together like this because it was considered to be subversive. But now we're back, and uh, I, I'm really pleased to introduce our poetry editor, Adam Kirsch, who is responsible for our special poetry issue. We do it every April. This is an especially good one, and he is going to introduce uh, Bruce Bond and Nicholas Pierce, our latest poetry winners. Unfortunately, we couldn't do it last year for the reasons I just adumbrated, but we're doing two tonight, so it's going to be extra good, double good. Thank you all for coming. Adam. So everyone, I just wanted to, to second those sentiments. Um, I'm very glad that we're gathered here. It, this is actually the first time since I became the poetry editor in 2019 that we've been able to celebrate the Poetry Prize winners um, for two years. And I especially like that they are poets at different stages of their lives and careers. Um, Bruce Bond is, is a widely published poet with many books, who's uh, been a professor at the University of North Texas, and he won for Behemoth in 2020. And Nicholas Pierce on this side, who won for In Transit, 
2021, is a PhD student at the University of Utah. At the beginning of his career, this is his first book. So um, we have two uh, excellent poets who, as the terms of the Poetry Prize say, are attentive to form um, and handle it beautifully and write the kind of uh, ambitious, serious, beautiful, and uh, formally aware poems that we look for in the new criterion. So if there are any poets out there who might be thinking of submitting for this year's Poetry Prize, the deadline is April 15th, so you have a couple of weeks to put your manuscripts together. Um, so we'll go in chronological order. We'll start, uh, I'll ask Bruce to come up and read a couple of poems, and then Nicholas will follow him. Um, and thank you. Okay, uh, since we have two, I'm just going to read two poems. The one is longer. Um, it starts out um, with a meditation on uh, John Keats. Just so uh, this doesn't fly by and puzzle people, there are a couple of quotes from Keats. And, uh, this is about his composition of an unfinished poem, The Fall of Hyperion, which is about the Greek gods basically getting depressed because nobody believes in them anymore. It would be a hard poem to finish. I mean, there, there's probably a reason there why he never finished it. But a line from the, the poem, this has got to be the weirdest line that Keats ever wrote, the superannuations of sunk realms. Which, so what that refers to is the retirement funds of the gods. Um, there are other quotes from him. I think uh, if, you, if you love Keats, you'll probably recognize so the title is Swan. Here, in this writing chamber, with its desk set, vase of ink, the faint depressions of the blotter, lit with oil harvested at sea, our weary insomniac John Keats is not well, though we cannot know this yet, what we know, how the story ends. You cannot see us, his future, let in a draft from the highlands and whisper of his ailment. He is too busy looking out on a world that is half dark, half garden, and a ghost reflection of the self who, mesmerized by silence, marks the dying fall of poems in an empty room to hear in words the emptiness. It is a piece he will not finish, though he works night into day talking with disconsolate gods bereft of acolytes and a sense of humor. That said, his speaker, our sole avatar, barely speaks. Though all the pantheon is there on the vine-beleaguered portico, each a scrap of marble in a plot whose civic matrix is dismantled, whose mortar mists at daybreak where cobbles of the other world jewel against the bright onset. It will be life to see them, he writes. But what he sees, he sees through, like a window laid across a stand of oak whose unheard tunes are sweeter, clearer. He tells himself, whose story comes to a stream made of glaciers in decline, Goliaths of weather, and the long, clear pole of its turbulence downstream. Once. Men walked across the water and children followed, and the willows leaned down like lions to the lyre. Women traced their silhouettes on the walls of caves, and when they died, the shadows remained and drew our shadows in kind.
to them, as if our death had met its match. The bodies of the killing fields would not be still and rose the way tidal waters do, and exalted tones as their horrors rise undaunted. Iron from the veins of leopards poured over the lips of cataracts, and the names they bore were a river's name, and their god a river still. When I was a kid, I had a puppet, a lion with one eye, his ear eaten by rain or rot or some corrosive creature. A castaway I found in the bushes or he found me, his face half alive, the other half blind, and I laid my voice in the darker portion. What was that you lost? My friend leaned in to ask me, that key to the boathouse, life before life, that lamentation in the ocean. He was talking about a dream I had, the childhood I left, my other father, and the small red pail of sand. And then I woke, a wave rolled through my chest. It broke and in the silence roared. Tonight, in the mausoleum's stillness, a day burns down its house of glass and calls it progress. My wife lights a Shabbat candle and I see the smoke where her mother looked, the ovens of the war years, their ecstasies of filth and cinders. Beauty overpowers all other considerations, the writer writes, and then he hears a gold bell in a nearby room and answers with bowls of mangoes and broth and towels to wipe the discharge from his brother's lip. His gods grow more and more contagious, the air metallic, the verses more difficult to finish. Though he swears an oath, he breathes into the corpse of earth to swell the core, to raise a fountainhead of dolls and monsters. Terror writes what terror burns each dawn and the sun gods die and the sky moves still. Clouds tear like hands from a helicopter rope. So what is lost or spent? What superannuations of sunk realms? What gems inside the marble forehead of the heroine, if not the theater dark that holds her to us? Ask the man who coughs blood into his brother's name. Blood dries, the name continues. In a day or two it pales, it dries. All things drawn through the mirror of each other. Remember me, says the movie that cannot move beyond its dull montage, stone lion, stone lamb, stoned retirement home, and boy who is its gardener. You can live this way for years in a graveyard of the stars writing melancholic odes with real wine in them. A drowsy numbness could pain your sense until one night in the labyrinths of Rome, you lose your way. The cafe awnings fold their wings in the cold facade and a downpour drowns your coat and hair. When a god dies, what then? You could submit to starvations and bleedings, the terrible science romance is made of, and find comfort in the company. And why not? Go on. Make them fabulous. These Athenas dying of neglect, their robes in ribbons, luxurious as rope that floats above the factories. 
Make them idols out of beach glass and expenditures of breath grown deep and weary from the journey. Sometimes the more merciful view is a porch in ruins, the beauty of decaying things. On the far side of the world, there is a word for that, for rust that eats across the signage, a word for the heads of flowers bent beneath the burden of light, for the brittle legs of bees, green striations of a stream gone dry, a word for the scratch of hieroglyphic on the gold plate tomb that no one understands, a word for the father when he has no words, but looks out on the sea with a voice that makes no sense. And yes, I nodded, yes. The red door of the eye swings wide to say, you too, come, sit, I can't sleep either. Dead lions, patriots, letters on the far side of the suffering that makes them sing, come. Put a little music on or not, you are not alone, you with your gash of diamonds bound in common fabric. A man's infection lies inside you, in petals of ash and abandoned pages, the disinfected bucket and scanned line, the sharp green scent of lime on things that go unspoken, in you the decomposition that winter brings to an end, and in the sap that aches one April over breakfast, you, you, in the dinner past, in silence, the distant shrieking of a swan. And this next poem is called Bronze. Tower bells beat the door of the sky and so call those who hear the toll of marriage or mourning or time passing before the bronze goes still. Today, I heard all those calls at once, leaning from the chamber, a rapture that bears, I know, a given message, though I like to think the music has its own. So too, its own cloud swept through the parapet where the temple scaffolds rise and fall over the face and stones of a great design, the one I never see. I, a mongrel, married a Jew. My table crowned in candles whose light and honey smokes the air and they are not mine. These dispensations echoed at the altar, not mine, the music of my home, though it marries me to the silence after. Call me a follower then, a mute observer, a bit of stone against the larger burden. I married a battered child, the girl in her broken by a stranger again and again, like a wave inside a shell. Whenever I hear bells, I think of this, unable to say what needs to be said, or hear the bro broken silence when it speaks. Nights, I am awakened by her breathing, and still I dream. Still, her heart beats its bronze against a sky I cannot enter. And when she moans, I shake her gently. It's okay, I answer. That's all it takes, a stage whisper. And she mumbles, thank you, love you, without opening her eyes.
just want to say thank you all for coming out to hear me read. Um, I'm going to read, I think, four poems from the book tonight, um, beginning with the first poem. Um, there's not much you need to know about it, but I guess I'll set the scene a little bit. Uh, when I was 10 years old, we moved from California to Texas, and during the drive, we got caught in one of the famous dust storms through West Texas, um, where uh, you know, basically a wall of dust goes across um, the desert, and then unfortunately it started raining on top of that, so the dust became mud, um, and it was as if mud was falling from the sky. So there's a poem called New Weather. Dust settling on the windshield, on blacktop, on mesquite, and yucca. Dust atomizing the grazing cattle, eroding distance, subtracting all color save red from West Texas. Dust venting into the car, a particle haze, the lingering cloud of a compact snapshot and stowed away in the secret depths of a mother's purse. Breathed in, sneezed out. Terrifying to her two boys in the back seat, whose Southern California childhood never acquainted them with weather. Merely irritating to her husband, who thinks it best to keep driving despite the litany of taillights glaring from the roadside, vanishing. Who capitulates begrudgingly when raindrops black as crude oil begin to sludge the windshield. Mascara tears that leave behind blinding trails as they trickle down reducing the world to a car's interior, to darkness, sound. The crunch of gravel when they reach, they hope, the shoulder, the sibilance of tires tearing past, the mother bracing for impact while telling her boys not to worry. An eternity of waiting, and then a splitting light, Rain washing away the mud call, restoring the desert, their eyes opening as if for the first time. Um, this next poem I'm going to read is called Eraminos, and it's uh, in the first section of the book, and the whole first section deals with a mentorship that I had during uh, my undergraduate career with an individual named Joe. and. Uh, in a lot of ways, he was responsible for introducing me to the art world, to poetry. Um, and I wanted to write a series of poems that were both grateful for that experience, but sort of questioned that relationship at the same time. So, Eraminos. Oh, and uh, um, this draws on the symposium as well. So, Eraminos. One night, while eating dinner on Joe's roof, wine drunk and self-important, we conducted our very own symposium on love, with each guest venturing a definition. First up was John, a Christian, husband, dad. He thought that earthly love approximated what lay in store for us in the next life. James, smart but saddled with a surfer's accent, believed that love was just a word we use so that attraction wouldn't seem so vulgar. Johnny, 
whose photographs revealed to all, it seemed, but his best friend and muse, J. Eric, the feelings she had for and kept from him. Considered love impossible to capture in words because it was at odds with thought. J. Eric, who had, for, who had grown up farming cotton, sought to define love through analogy, claiming that it was like the plant's raw fibers, which, once refined, would clothe and keep us warm. Before I took my turn, Joe interrupted to serve dessert. Grilled peaches from his tree, topped with whipped cream and a balsamic drizzle. While we dug in, he roasted coffee beans in an air popper, waiting for the second, always the second crack, to pour the beans into the mouth of a hand mill, an antique, then cranking, 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 switching arms, then cranking some more, till the wooden drawer was close to overflowing with that fine brown powder. Then he went downstairs, returning with six of his most beautiful clay cups. Mine, as with all the others, was imperfect, having been made by hand, by student hands, most likely, since the artists Joe collected were largely students who had once, like us, attended dinners on his roof, discussing the subjects we discussed, eating the food we ate, who, as we would, had graduated and moved away, keeping in touch or not. Love, I began, uncertain how to go on, looking around the table at the plates stacked up, the faces waiting for an answer. At Joe, our Socrates, my closest friend, who lived alone in an art deco rental with paint chips flaking off the outside walls and water stains collecting on the ceiling, and who expected nothing in return for all he gave us, which was more than plenty, more anyway, than I could often eat. That's love, I thought, while at the same time thinking of Joe's foot running up and down my leg, a gesture that I told myself meant nothing, which I admit it even sort of liked, since no one else receives such special treatment. Love is attention by another name, I said at last, and left it at that, waiting, despite myself, for Joe's approving touch. Okay, um, the next poem I'm going to read is from the second section of the book, which is sort of all travel poems in their way. Um, I had this experience when I was flying into Mexico, uh, where the whole flight, the, the you know, fold-down screens from the ceiling never came down. But then we started descending, and the screen suddenly did come down, and a movie started playing, and I realized that it was actually a footage of our plane as we were descending. It was a camera on the bottom of the plane that was showing us the runway as we were going in. And I sort of thought how funny it would be if, if the plane, you know, something happened to the plane, then you would be watching yourself sort of, you know, go up in flames. So uh, I've never seen another flight that did this, so maybe they realized also that that was a bad idea. Um, this is called In-Flight Entertainment. The screens fold down only after we've begun to descend, blinking to life with footage of our plane, live footage, it would seem. A glance out the window to my left confirms this impression. The mountains in one duplicated in the other, a runway in both taking shape. When the landing gear folds down, 
It occurs to me how odd it would be were something to go wrong, were one of our jet engines to, say, inhale a few unlucky seagulls, flames and bloody feathers spewing out the other end, all of it captured on camera and played back for us in real time in what would have to be the most exciting, not to say fun, documentary we'd ever watch. We who would be dead in mere seconds, who till the last would hope against hope for a Hollywood ending. Of course, in all likelihood, the plane won't crash, just as I probably won't contract my mother's cancer. It's more likely that I'll change lanes into a semi or have an aneurysm before my 71st birthday party if that age isn't wishful thinking. That's something I've never even thought to fear will get me. The same is true of everyone on board, yet our eyes remain glued to the screens, just in case. Then the footage suddenly freezes, pausing on a short strip of runway, an image blurred into abstraction by the speed at which we're descending. Okay, and the last two poems that I'll read um, are short ones, and they're from the final section of the book, uh, which deals uh, with the loss of my mother to cancer. Um, the first of these is called Palimpsest, and it is about this dining table that we had. Um, and it was made of reclaimed pine, which is very soft wood. Typically, tables aren't made of pine for that reason. And so it preserved all of these impressions in the tabletop. So years and years of impressions. And I always thought it was an interesting record of growing up. Palimpsest. Hold your eye level with the dining table to see how much its reclaimed pine remembers. The scars of 30 years of dropped utensils, bumped glasses, long forgotten meals and arguments, of homework going back to junior high, the layers of equations running together as if part of one long problem worked out over your whole childhood. Mixed in with your late mother's to-do lists, her notes reminding you to feed the dog, clean up your room, help out your older brother. With chemo dates, her doctor's number, checks made out to hospice and the mortuary, the verses you considered for her headstone, and the black eyes of pried out nails. Suggestions of a past life in England, one of many boards taken out of an abandoned barn. The wood, not young, but still impressionable. And the, the last poem I read is the last poem of the book. And um, I felt the need when I, I had sort of uh, finished this section to, to write a poem that summed up the section, um, or at least write about what informed my writing of the poems. And so this is a poem called Explaining Myself. Form, my teacher averred can protect against outpourings of emotion such as occur after a loss. Advice I followed when documenting the toll cancer caught late took on you, subjecting peers and workshop to accounts raw as they were rigid. A villanelle whose two repeating lines suggested remission and relapse, a double sonnet, an Elizabethan enclosed within an Italian's octave and sestet, about bees that took up residence in a porch hollow of a house where I was myself a guest. The metaphor growing labored when I tied infestation to disease. A sestina, sodden with perspiration and sibling rivalry, the more insidious for going unacknowledged. 
which relocated the Tempest to South Texas, land of storms capable of toppling a boat dock. As one proved the summer, your last, your firstborn sought to find out if sweat can expel grief, pouring himself into work. A long-imagined, never-finished pantoum on the bed swing, most southern of southern comforts, my brother's rendering of which weighed as much as four men could carry, a hulking mass, coffin dense, its construction rushed to ensure it saw you through your last days, you whom chemo had winnowed to a matchstick, who, swaddled for warmth, suspended as in water, rocking back and forth, slept like a baby. Subjecting myself to critique, and worse, infinitely worse, to pity. Form, that bulwark. That's it. Thank you. Thanks very much to both of our poets. Um, I want to let everyone know that the books are available for purchase by the front for, I believe, $20. And I'm sure the poets would be happy to sign them for you. And up here, we have some food catered from Veselka, um, which I hope you'll enjoy. So again, thanks, everybody, for joining us to celebrate these books. Um, and enjoy the party. <laughs>